we are here with the wind in our back. Because did anyone notice what happened on Tuesday? What does an eventful week in politics tell us about the presidential election that's now less than a year away? For Sunday, November 12th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll check in on a long-shot primary challenge to President Biden. We'll also hear from a Palestinian columnist about how she views the world response to the bombardments of Gaza. People talk about the conflict being complex, but human rights, human dignity, you know, that is not complex. And Wilco's Jeff Tweedy on what music moves him and what doesn't. I've met John Bon Jovi's very lovely person, does a lot of great work for his community, and it doesn't help his music for me at all. Plus, with the holidays ahead, we'll hear how to shake up family traditions. First, news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israeli ground forces continue to battle Hamas militants near Gaza's biggest hospital for a second straight day. NPR's Lauren Frere reports Palestinian health officials say 12 people have died at the region's largest hospital because of power outages and dwindling supplies. The Palestinian Ministry of Health calls it a catastrophe. Dialysis machines and incubators for newborns shut down. It says 10,000 cancer patients have been expelled from two Gaza hospitals. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told NBC's Meet the Press that Israel offered al-Shifa hospital fuel to run its generators, but that, quote, they refused it. On CNN, Netanyahu said 100 or so people had been evacuated from al-Shifa and that Israel is creating safe corridors. But thousands of staff, patients, and displaced people remain trapped amid fighting around the hospital. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Tens of thousands of demonstrators flooded the streets in cities across France today in marches against anti-Semitism. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from one of the protests that took place today in Paris. French political leaders from across the spectrum sang the national anthem and led the march behind a banner reading For the Republic Against Anti-Semitism. Since the October 7th Hamas attack and amid Israeli bombardment of Gaza, anti-Semitic acts have skyrocketed in France. 35-year-old Parisian Mikhail Dussain is not Jewish, but he says he had to be here. Today is a day that is not about Israel or a geopolitical situation. In my opinion, it's a day about respect of fundamental human values. President Emmanuel Macron called on French citizens to turn out and stand by their Jewish compatriots, but he is also calling for a ceasefire and an end to Israel's bombing of civilians. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Paris. Five U.S. service members were killed when their Black Hawk helicopter from the 160th Special Operations Regiment suffered what the Pentagon says was a mishap. NPR's Tom Bowman reports the aircraft crashed into the Mediterranean Sea on Friday. The helicopter was on a routine training mission, officials say, when it crashed into the eastern Mediterranean. Officials say there was no indication of hostile fire. Search and rescue operations are underway by U.S. aircraft and ships. A U.S. aircraft carrier and accompanying ships are operating in the Mediterranean, part of a beefed-up presence to deter Iran from getting involved in the Israeli-Hamas war. Tom Bowman, NPR News. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Teacher union representatives and the school committee said they hope a deal can be reached to end the strike that began Friday and open schools tomorrow. Bargaining was to resume this afternoon. The teachers want better benefits and protected preparation time. The school committee said it offered increased wages and expanded parental leave. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The school committee is seeking a court order to stop it. The shark population on Cape Cod is strong and growing. That's according to biologist Greg Skomel of the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. And he says the sharks don't leave at the end of summer. In fact, peak season for the great white shark is just winding down off the Cape. Our peak month, based on our research, uh, are August, September, and October. Now, that doesn't mean they all leave, you know, come October 31st. You know, a lot of sharks will stick around uh, into November until we really get a dramatic drop in water temperature. Scomel says uh, sharks are in the waters as late as December as they move out of the Gulf of Maine and parts of Canada. Watertown-based meat delivery startup ButcherBox cutting jobs. The founder and CEO wrote on social media the company laid off 15 employees last week. He said the decision was based on the company's desire to, quote, refocus on operational efficiency. The company has about 200 employees. Well, the Patriots' record has now dropped to 2-8 and eight on the season as the Pats lost to Indianapolis today in Frankfurt, Germany, by a final score of 10 to 6. The Patriots have uh, the bye week coming up next weekend and then resume play against the New York Giants. Partly cloudy skies overnight. Bundle up if you're going to be out later overnight. It's going to drop into the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow with temperatures in the low 40s and then mostly sunny 50 on Tuesday. Right now in Boston, it is 38 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Viking and Penguin Random House Audio, publishers of My Name is Barbara, the memoir by Barbara Streisand. My Name is Barbara is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Check your calendars, folks. We are less than a year out from the next presidential election and just two months away from the Iowa caucuses. And a lot of things happened in this past week that tell us a lot about the political climate heading into what is shaping up to be at this moment a 2024 rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. Elections in Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky and elsewhere showed slightly surprising Democratic strength and the enduring power of abortion as a campaign issue. We are here with the wind in our back because did anyone notice what happened on Tuesday? In Miami, five Republican candidates met for a debate, but once again, Republican frontrunner Donald Trump did not bother to attend. Instead, he held a rally nearby. I'm thrilled to be here in the heart of Miami with thousands of proud, hardworking, God-fearing American patriots. That's what you are. But at the same time, Trump's testimony in a New York civil trial showed just how legally vulnerable he is right now. And hovering above all of it, a series of polls indicating that Biden is unpopular and struggling against Trump a year out. So for our Sunday cover story, we are going to talk through all of this and more with two of my buds from the NPR politics team, senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. And White House correspondent Asma Hall. Hey, Asma. Hi, Scott. 
So, Domenico, from all of the things I just mentioned, what is the most important? What is the least important? Oh, my goodness. Uh, most important to least important is kind of tough to say because they're all important and they're all not important in a lot of different ways <laughs> when it comes to politics. Um, you know, I mean, look, we have the elections on Tuesday. Democrats are certainly going to take a little bit of a sigh of relief at that. They're going to feel like abortion rights is still an issue that they really have uh, uh, using as the wind at their backs. I expect one Democratic strategist I talked to this week said that they're going to try as hard as they can to put abortion on every single ballot in the 2024 presidential election states. And they're going to need it because they know that President Biden is vulnerable. Yeah. As those polls did show in those swing states, he is vulnerable. Everyone unprompted brings up his age, no doubt about it. Yep. We are still a year out, though, and we need to make that caveat understood because this coalition that Biden has is really, as one strategist said, an anti-Trump coalition that's going to need time to recoalesce. If I could just jump on one thing Domenico said there about abortion. Abortion is really, I think, potentially the saving issue for Joe Biden heading into 2024. I was just out in Arizona the other week, and they are currently gathering signatures to put a ballot initiative on the the ballot for 2024 that would create a constitutional right for abortion. And the people I met, a number of them said that they do not align with the Democratic Party. They were signing on to this ballot initiative uh, and you know, they're motivated more by this issue than they are by Joe Biden. And that's what Democrats are hoping for, that that voters will show up to vote for an issue like this. And while they're out there, you know, potentially cast a vote for Biden as well. I mean, it passed by such a wide margin in Ohio, a state that has moved so far, even from the time we all started covering this from NPR, even in that that in politics, relatively short period of time, Ohio has just shifted so far to the right. And yet such a big win. But Asma, I Really want to hear from you how the White House and the Biden campaign is thinking of all of this. We heard uh, Vice President Harris a moment ago. That mm-hmm. was from a, a quick political appearance in South Carolina that, that you traveled to yep, with right. the vice president uh, saying the wind is at our backs. But you also have a series of polls from national news outlets that are, are pretty decent at polling, showing Biden struggling in hypothetical head-to-head matchups with, with Trump, who is a candidate who comes into the race with dozens and dozens of serious criminal charges. Mm-hmm. How are they making sense of this moment, and what are they trying to, to argue? The White House position is essentially that polls don't vote, voters vote. And so they point to what happened on Tuesday as evidence that ultimately the, you know, the final poll, they say, is what happens on Election Day. So they feel very positive, not just about what happened in Ohio, but they say even look at the Kentucky governor's race yeah. where Democratic Governor Andy Bashir was able to win a second term. So right now they see that. They see the election results from the 2022 midterms where Democrats also did potentially better than some of the you know pundits had expected. And they see that all as positive signs. What you're talking about, though, in the polls, look, I think that that is important. What you keep hearing the White House do, though, is essentially dismiss those polls. They don't take them seriously. I I will say, as someone who looks at a lot of polling and also spends a lot of time talking to voters, those concerns that you see in the polls are real. I can't tell you the amount of times I hear from voters' concerns about the president's age or the economy. It must not be a comfortable feeling to to be somebody in Joe Biden's campaign, seeing data that shows voters trust a person facing multiple criminal charges who spent the last three years trying to overturn a presidential election. They say, actually, I trust that guy more with the economy. I trust that guy more with other key issues. The economy is a perfect example of where I think the White House has been frustrated because they've had this Bidenomics messaging that they've been trying to take out on the road and campaign on. And 
fundamentally, voters don't seem to be swayed that much mm-hmm. ever since they've been out trying to pitch the economic wins that you've seen of this administration. And the reason why, Scott, is that, yes, the economy is doing better by some metrics. But what I hear from voters consistently is they are still frustrated by high prices. And while inflation has dipped, people are still paying more today than they were for a number of goods before the pandemic set in, before Joe Biden entered the Oval Office. That is their frustration. And those are like intangible frustrations. I don't really know what the White House can do on this economics question, but I will also say the analysts I talk to say they have to keep trying. You can't ignore the economy and expect to win re-election. But there are a lot of Democrats who are saying that they feel like the president should talk about the economy in a different way, even if that's just promoting some of the things that they've done to improve some aspects of the economy. But I will just say the thing that I think happened this week that may be more important than any of the other things that we've been talking about so far Mm -hmm. is the potential for these third-party candidates to start running. We're talking about somebody like Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, who uh, stepped aside from running for uh, re-election in a red state. And ambiguously said he's going to explore some options. Right. And I was going to say, not only does that imperil Democrats' chances of holding on to the Senate, which they only have a one-seat majority currently, um, but you look at someone like Manchin. You look at someone like Jill Stein, Mm -hmm. who, you know, announced that she's going to run for the Green Party nomination. You look at somebody like Cornell West, who's who's, uh, thinking about running as well, and RFK Jr., who's already in the race. And when we think about these kinds of of people and you think about the anti-Trump coalition that Biden built up in 2020, you're talking about moderate voters, Manchin, black voters, Cornell West, young voters and people who care about the environment, Jill Stein, because when she ran this week, she started talking about a ceasefire between uh, Hamas and Israel. And that's something that's really split the Democratic Party with young voters being less likely to support Israel. And that is another thing. Asma, I want to ask you about this because you went to work at the White House this week after a big pro-Palestinian protest in front of the White House. And there are so many younger voters in particular, voters who tend to vote Democrat in particular, who feel so strongly about this issue. You see Biden, you know, talking about the need for humanitarian pauses, talking about the need to to minimize civilian casualties as much as possible. But by and large, standing with Israel in this moment, saying Israel has a right to respond. And of course, the U.S. is such a big military backer of Israel. How politically risky is this for Biden if you look at how angry people who are a key part of his base really are right now? I don't know that we know the answer to what this may mean politically, Scott. I I think there's two things to consider. One is there is no doubt a sizable population of young voters, some of many of them voters of color who are not on board with the Biden administration's current foreign policy in Israel. Um, You see that in survey after survey. Uh, What I will say is the White House says that uh, elections are a long time away from today. People don't tend to always vote on foreign policy and they don't tend to vote on one issue. I think that is true. At the same time, there are definitely big, big alarm bells in a state like Michigan, a state that has a sizable Arab American population, a sizable Muslim population. You hear this, you see this in polls. I have heard this in interviews as well, Scott. People are deeply frustrated with the Biden administration and they are saying, hey, I'll look at one of those third parties. I don't want to give Biden another chance. And losing Michigan, a state that what Hillary Clinton lost by 10,000 votes to Donald Trump in 2016, yeah. that's not uh, that's not an ideal position for Democrats to be in. Yeah, it's a tough balance because there's a lot of Jewish voters, too. Yes. Yeah. And that is a huge part of the Democratic coalition. This is a hard 
thing to, to really solve politically because there are th – this is one of those issues that is dividing a piece of the Democratic base that is very important and it's not one that you're going to be able to find a – a wiggly, yeah. political, mushy position that's going to satisfy everybody. Though, can I say one thing? I don't know that the policy will shift in any way to essentially satisfy everyone. Right. But I was out with the vice president, Vice President Harris, and she actually spoke to this issue of the protests in a way that I thought was more nuanced than a number of the comments that we've heard thus far from administration officials. She fundamentally said... Uh, protests, ha protesters have a right to do what they do. Mm -hmm. uh, we should listen to their voice and that this isn't a binary calculation. And I do think if the administration can thread the needle a little bit more and offer some nuance, that will potentially at least speak to some of the concerns that these young voters have. Last question for both of you. This far out from the election, what's the most important thing that you're thinking about that can affect votes down the line happening in the near future? What's the biggest factor out there that's going to affect things? Well, there are a lot of things that can change. And I think that's an important thing for people to keep in mind. We're at a volatile point in, our, in American politics generally. The economy is a volatile uh, situation because you have some good signs of the economy, but other difficult signs like grocery prices, gas prices, those things going up or down are really going to have a huge effect on whether Biden wins or loses. And of course, how he's handling things abroad, especially with Israel and Hamas right now, which is such a fundamentally, um, you know, passionate, um, you know, difficult p place and position for a lot of people and for Biden to have to try to weave a needle to keep his base together. That's Domenico Montanaro and Asma Hawad. You can hear both of them in my old neighborhood, the NPR Politics Podcast, every weekday. Thanks to both of you. You're welcome. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR, and we are thankful that you do. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at clarkliving.com. There's nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Partly cloudy and cold overnight, lows drop to the 20s. Clouds increase tomorrow with temps in the 40s. 38 now in Boston. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The health care crisis in Gaza is getting worse. Officials say the region's biggest hospital has devolved into a catastrophic situation. The Palestine Red Crescent Society says Gaza's second largest hospital is also out of service. 
Thousands of people are taking to the streets in Paris today to protest against anti-Semitism. Officials say there have been more than a thousand acts against Jews in France since Hamas attacked Israel last month. President Biden will travel to San Francisco this week for a summit of Asia-Pacific leaders. He's expected to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines. It will be their first face-to-face meeting since last November. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Israel said. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Five weeks into the war between Israel and Hamas, the humanitarian situation in Gaza is growing increasingly dire. Shelter, food, fuel, and water are all in critically short supply as the Israeli military pushes further into the Palestinian territory and hundreds of thousands of people try to flee the fighting. Conditions at Gaza hospitals are especially bleak, with some forced to close because of a lack of power amid heavy bombing. Meanwhile, pressure continues to mount around the world on Israel to declare a ceasefire for humanitarian reasons. There have been marches in London, Paris, and elsewhere this weekend demanding a pause in order to save lives. But writer Arwa Madawi worries those calls will fall on deaf ears. She's a U.S.-based columnist for The Guardian, and her latest piece is titled, Is It Too Much to Ask People to View Palestinians as Humans? Apparently so. Arwa Madawi, welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thank you for having me. This column started off pretty direct and blunt. Your first sentence is, I don't want to ever hear Western democracies lecture the rest of the world on human rights ever again. Why is that? I mean, just look at what's unfolding, the horror that is unfolding in Gaza at the moment. You know, we have 1.7 million Gazans have been displaced, over 11,000 Palestinians dead, over 5,000 children dead. The U.S. government not only seems to have no empathy at all for what's happening to Palestinians, you have people in Congress saying, turn Gaza into a parking lot. And the only person getting censored in Congress is Rashida Tlaib. Mm -hmm. You've been particularly critical of the Biden administration and its approach here. This is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking on CNN earlier today about the situation with hospitals in particular. The bottom line for the United States is that we do not want to see firefights in a hospital. We do not want to see innocent patients who are sick or wounded uh, be injured or killed in the crossfire. Why isn't that line of argument enough for you? It's not enough for the U.S. to say we do not want to see. The U.S. can pick up the phone and tell Israel to stop this. This is being done with U.S. taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. The U.S. government isn't just allowing this to happen. It's actively cheering it on, and it could stop it at any moment. This is why so many of us are so incensed, because not only is this horror unfolding, we're all complicit because our taxpayer dollars are paying for this. Yeah, I could feel the anger radiating as I read your column, and I can hear talking to you just just how upset all of this makes you. Obviously, what's directly happening, but the way it's being talked about in the media, the way it's being responded to by leaders around the world. 
yeah, I mean, I don't feel welcome in America anymore. I've lived in America for over 10 years. I don't feel welcome going back to London. I feel that, you know, how dare the Biden administration say that Palestinians are lying about the death toll? I mean... You resp- you're, you're referring to something he said late last month. He was asked about the death toll in Gaza in a press conference, and, and this is how the president responded. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. And, and since the White House has said it's clear that thousands have been killed, but, but that moment really struck you. I mean, yes, when Biden stands up and he says that, what he's saying isn't just, I don't believe Palestinians. He says, I don't believe Palestinians are worthy of being believed. And there's, there's other ways that just the talking about and phrasing about the death toll here has really indicated to you that there's there's broader questions that, that it brings up. And of course, you know, 1,200 Israelis were killed on October 7th. And since the the, the latest figure from, from health officials in Gaza is over 11,000 Palestinians in the more than a month of bombardment and invasion since then. And, and you know, what's more horrific is that anybody calling for a ceasefire gets smeared. You know, a ceasefire is the very least that should be happening right now. As you wrote about, as we have seen over and over again, we have seen many Palestinian leaders and advocates be pressed in interviews to publicly condemn Hamas. And in your piece, you offer that condemnation. But then you say you, quote, ask that the absolute condemnation goes both ways. Can you explain what you're asking for there? You know, it's it's always Palestinians are asked to condemn, condemn, condemn violence. Meanwhile, I never hear Israeli commentators being asked to condemn the occupation, to condemn the killing of Palestinians. I mean, I think, you know, what frustrates me is that the, the media attention is only ever when Israelis get killed. Like, the violence did not start on October 7th, and obviously what happened on October 7th was horrific, and I will condemn that, but I do ask that the condemnation goes both ways, and it does not happen. This clearly cuts very, very deep for you. Is there anything else that you've been thinking about over the past few weeks that, that you'd like to add? I, I think that people talk about the conflict being complex, but... Human rights, human dignity, you know, that is not complex. Anyone who has been to the occupied territory, anyone who has seen how Palestinians have to live will realize that that's not complex. That is unfair. That is Guardian columnist Arwa Matawi. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you very much. Bye. Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota recently launched his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination in New Hampshire. His campaign is a long, long shot. There's no question about it. But his challenge of President Joe Biden is dividing Democrats. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, it highlights concern within the party that the president's reelection effort may be in trouble. Welcome to my very first town hall in the Granite State. Only 119 to go. Before a small group of voters in Manchester, Dean Phillips gets right to the point about why he's challenging Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination. He points out that a number of recent polls show Trump ahead nationally and in key swing states. Because the truth of the matter is, President Biden, a man I respect, and I'm sure most of you do too, is perhaps the only Democrat who could lose to Donald Trump. In fact, he's likely to. Phillips is a centrist Democrat who supports Biden's agenda, but says he's failed to unite the country. If he wins, Phillips says he'd appoint both Democrats and Republicans to his cabinet. 
In fact, he tapped a never-Trump Republican who quit the GOP to direct his campaign. Steve Schmidt, who co-founded the anti-Trump Lincoln Project, says Democrats are in denial about Biden's weakness. Is the MAGA movement on its last breath? Is Donald Trump retired in Mar-a-Lago? Donald Trump is 40 points ahead in the Republican primary, and in one poll, nine points ahead of Joe Biden. This is not a national security secret. The campaign hopes to appeal to moderates. Phillips calls them the exhausted majority. He supports abortion rights, but he says he understands why many don't. He's a gun owner who backs gun regulations. But in Manchester, his effort to reach toward the middle crashed when a 23-year-old voter named Atan Chan challenged him. She asked Phillips why he didn't back a ceasefire in Gaza. I have to tell you, I took note that you didn't mention, how do you feel about the Israeli babies? the grandmothers and grandpas that were killed and put up I on Facebook. I am completely empathetic to them. But by you switching this conversation, no. I'm talking about the no, 10,000 dead people in Gaza. So I'm, what I'm And you're to, not answering my question, I'm just to, like the conversation. The clash escalated as Chan became furious and Philip struggled to control the meeting. Okay, everybody, look at one, all I ask is just kindness and respect to one another, all of us. I respect you. But Phillips also had support in the room. Steve Shirtliff, who co-chaired Biden's 2020 campaign in the state, says he's backing Phillips because Biden is too old and too unpopular. I'm concerned with the president's negatives. I think in a poll in New Hampshire, 67% of Democrats uh, said they wished he wouldn't run again. They wish he'd step aside and pass that torch to the next generation. But in New Hampshire, Biden still has plenty of supporters, and some are worried that Phillips' campaign will only weaken the president's chances against Trump. What Dean Phillips is doing is feeding the Republican narrative that Joe Biden can't win, there's no enthusiasm. Kathy Sullivan is a former chair of the state Democratic Party. New Hampshire offers Phillips a big opportunity to be noticed, since Biden won't appear on the state's primary ballot. That's because the Democratic Party picked South Carolina to hold the first primary ahead of New Hampshire. So Sullivan is leading a write-in campaign in New Hampshire for the president and says Phillips will only hurt that effort. If, as he says, he wants a Democrat to win the White House, the best thing for Mr. Phillips to do is to pack his bags and go back to Minnesota. Antoine Seawright, a political strategist in South Carolina, agrees. It was Joe Biden's decision to make South Carolina first. And so to buck that shows not only that disrespect to black voters, the most loyal and dedicated voting bloc in a generation, but also to the process. For his part, Phillips rejects that charge. Speaking to white voters in New Hampshire is not disrespectful to black voters in South Carolina. When I'm in South Carolina speaking to black voters, that's not disrespectful to Arab American voters in Michigan. Phillips says he's only telling Democrats what they need to hear, that large numbers of Americans don't want either Trump or Biden as president. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks in Manchester, New Hampshire. Now to Myanmar, where an attack by an alliance of ethnic armies has dealt the country's military a serious setback. The alliance had previously refrained from overtly taking sides in efforts to return Myanmar to a democratic rule following a 2021 military coup. And now that has changed. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from neighboring Thailand. The audacious offensive by the so-called Three Brotherhood Alliance, along with smaller anti-junta groups, encountered so little resistance it just kept going, occupying dozens of military posts, border towns, and key roads along the main trade route with neighboring China. 
in 25 years of doing this, I haven't seen an operation of that breadth and daring and sheer coordination, you know, with multiple actors, many of whom have spent a long time preparing for this. So it suggests a level of strategic patience, logistics, planning and operational security that is almost unheard of in the rest of Myanmar. David Matheson is a Myanmar analyst based in Chiang Mai, Thailand. There's no hard data on just how many casualties have been inflicted, but it seems like it's been very heavy. Also, the use of drones and and the destruction of bridges. I mean, this is a very well thought out operation. One of those drones reportedly killed a senior military commander believed to be the highest ranking officer lost in combat since the coup. The UN says the fighting has displaced some 50,000 people in northern Shan state. This shopkeeper, Seng, in the northern city of Lashio, told NPR the main highway to China has been closed due to the fighting and that prices for basic goods have risen as a result. Opponents of the military are meanwhile hailing the assault as a possible turning point in the nearly three-year-long war against the military. Richard Horsey, senior Myanmar advisor for the International Crisis Group, isn't so sure. You know, and that's really given a morale boost to the resistance, which, you know, has not really been generating all that much momentum on the battlefield or or politically over the last few months. But it's too early to judge how this is going to end. He says that will largely depend on what the military's counterattack will look like. You know, if that's very weak and uncoordinated and slow in coming, then that will message to many people across Myanmar that, As some uh, have been saying in the resistance, the Myanmar military is weak, its morale is low, it hasn't got the power that it once had. On the other hand, if they are able to muster a determined, decisive response, uh, that will put some of those claims uh, to rest. Neighboring China's response to the fighting has so far been muted, beyond urging an end to it and advising its citizens not to travel to the north where it also has ties to some of the groups involved. But its patience with the junta may be wearing thin. The military's inability or unwillingness to shut down cyber scam centers along the border that have ensnared Chinese citizens is one reason. But David Matheson thinks an even bigger concern for China is protecting its existing energy pipelines and a railway it wants to build as it expands its influence and trade links in the region and beyond. Ultimately, what the Chinese really want is stability, certainty, predictability, um, because they've still got all these Belt and Road infrastructure projects to pursue. And it's, it's not a good look when the military regime can't hold on to one of the major trading points. And you've got uh, all of these insurgents you know, waving flags and, and having destroyed all the police stations and the bridges. Not a good look, he says, that may cause China to rethink its reluctant embrace of the military post-coup, when the junta said it could protect China's people and its interests in the country. Nearly three years later, as the civil war rages, with nearly two million people internally displaced, Beijing may now indeed be having second thoughts. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Chiang Rai. This is NPR News. Thanksgiving is less than two weeks away, and for many Americans, that means the start of a pretty intense holiday period full of family gatherings and year-end traditions. 
But what if you're not too into those old family traditions anymore? Life Kit's Marielle Segarra has some tips for how to make your own traditions. A lot of the time when our traditions don't work anymore, it's because we don't see the meaning behind them. Or that meaning doesn't resonate with us. So, for instance, maybe I wanted a new tradition because the other ones felt empty or they felt too consumerist and everybody was spending, you know, hundreds of dollars on these holiday gifts and they just get forgotten about after a couple of months. That's Andrea Bonnier. She's a psychologist with a podcast called Baggage Check, Mental Health Talk and Advice. So a good place to start when you're dreaming up new traditions is to ask yourself, what do you want them to mean? Like, what will this holiday or event be about? Is it about giving back to others? If so, you could volunteer at a food bank with your family every few months. Is it about gratitude? Why not go around the table at dinner and say what you're grateful for? Is it about finding the light in the darkness? Then you could go on a hike with your family or friends on the day of the winter solstice. Or let's say your family really values laughter and play. You could start a monthly game night and every new participant has to have their photo taken wearing a leopard print Snuggie. And now we have this connection, and it's silly to outsiders, but it brings us a sense of togetherness and comfort. Something else to consider as you create traditions is what's missing in your life, or even what was missing when you grew up. Ehime Ora is a spiritual educator based in New York. When you look at your childhood, what felt the most empty for you? What felt like you couldn't have that or it didn't feel enough? And that is really like the hint of creating these newer, better traditions for yourself. Let's say you felt lonely, like your family wasn't part of a community or you never really gathered with folks to celebrate. As an adult, you might decide to join a weekly class. That's a tradition, too. I'm currently doing pottery, ceramics, and I connect with the people who are also in this classes as me. We laugh about, you know, how our clay cups, pots, or whatever are looking messed up. Maybe you take it even further and host a monthly potluck with your pottery friends. Or you gather folks for a party on Pie Day. That's March 14th. It's a math joke. And everybody brings a pie. Your traditions don't have to be tied to the big holidays. Now, when the day of your new tradition arrives, be ready for the emotions that might come up. I mean, yeah, it might feel thrilling and fun and freeing, but also if your new tradition is a replacement for a long-standing one. It's common to have those bouts of loneliness, those bouts of doubt, regret, or even these bouts of unworthiness as well. Like, who am I now without the old traditions? It's a kind of grief. So be kind to yourself. And Andrea Bonnier says, don't put too much pressure on this new event. It doesn't have to be this magical thing. But we really need to observe ourselves. What have I internalized about how perfect this is supposed to be? Because I might have such rigid expectations that I'm making myself miserable. Remember, this is supposed to be fun. And if it's not, you're allowed to stop doing it. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. For more on making your own traditions, check out LifeKit at npr.org slash LifeKit. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. So glad you're with us. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour and a lawsuit against 
Amazon. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Partly cloudy and cold overnight. Lows drop to the 20s. Clouds tomorrow, 40s. It's 28 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, the Pulitzer Prize-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music, coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from now through December 10th at The Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. Israeli ground forces are battling Hamas militants near Gaza's largest hospital for a second straight day. Palestinian health officials say 12 people have died at Al-Shifa Hospital because of power outages and dwindling supplies. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says that Israel is doing all it can to minimize civilian casualties as it fights back against Hamas militants. He said Israel is complying with international law. The House is expected to take up a short-term government spending bill this week. Lawmakers are up against a Friday deadline to reach an agreement. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at SmartMouth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It's time for our weekly Enlighten Me conversation. This week, Rachel Martin is speaking with Wilco's Jeff Tweedy, an artist whose music has helped many fans find meaning. Yeah, I see you sad dads. But rather than chat about his own catalog, Tweedy wanted to honor the music that has inspired him. This conversation is for anyone who has heard a song and felt less alone because of it. And I'm betting that's most of us, right? For Jeff Tweedy, his new book, World Within a Song, is a chance to pay tribute to the music that inspired him and kept him company. Songs that made a home in his head and his heart and never left. I think in song shapes. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, I think it's just the the nature of having been immersed in, in records for my whole life, I guess. So I want to do this, if you don't mind. Like, I want to kind of walk through and listen to mm -hmm. several of the songs that you write about and just talk about them. And sure. the imprint that all these made on you. Starting with the start. <laughs> you write in the book that the song that made the first dent in your musical mind, which is your <laughs> turn to phrase, which is lovely, uh, is Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Don't, don't play the whole thing, though. Hell no. <laughs> I 
I was gonna say, and then we're gonna move past this rift, but nope, we don't yet. We stay with it. We stay with it. Yeah, I don't think you ever move past that rift. No, it's just it's the rift. You know, I think at the time that I'm talking about uh, in the book, I'm didn't know the name of that song. I don't think. I don't think I would have even known anything about it other than when I picked up a guitar and I tried to imagine how somebody plays it you know you put your hands on the the neck and you do this and i think that i went bump 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 <laughs> you know i think it's like it really is so ele <laughs> it's so elemental i think it's it's empowering that's yeah. the first inkling i had that it's something that i could actually do and i feel like that song functioned that way for a lot a lot of people yeah. that became musicians yeah it's important it's like stumbling across some uh new element that gets added to the table of elements or something you know when right. somebody comes up with a riff like that it's like right. oh it's like I should give it a scientific name and an atomic weight right <laughs> there is a song in the book called Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down, mm -hmm. which is just a haunting, beautiful thing. Um, originally, this was sung by a guy named Frank Prophet, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's listen to some of this. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. That's your version of this song. That's uh, you, Uncle Uncle Tupelo's version of that song, yeah. That's your band uh, before Wilco, Uncle Tupelo. You loved the song so much that that you guys recorded a version of this song. It's like when I hear myself singing that, I can hear myself trying to reach for the gravitas of the original. I don't know. I'm like, it's so low for me to sing. Gonna shout until I tear your kingdom down. The original that I heard sounds like a very old man that has earned the fear <laughs> uh, yeah. you know and that's one of the things i think i responded to also is hearing these old folk songs and how they had lasted and survived for long periods of time and they're fear-based but there's a catharsis to them uh that i i could relate to that felt like punk rock to me you know, felt very similar to the way punk rock would, uh, felt like a safety valve or a release, you know, of anger and, and fear. For I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. He strikes me as the kind of guy who really did believe in heaven and hell and Satan and good and evil. And you strike me as someone who does not believe those things. I, I believe them in my own way. I think mm. that um, I've experienced hellish things. I've experienced things that um, are euphoric, you know. Did you grow up in a religious family? No. Um, my mother was very suspicious of religion, particularly... I think that she thought the clergy, and I think she was suspicious of people in a lot of ways. She was, she thought they were phony. Uh, All the people. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And did any of your own thoughts fall neatly into some kind of religious framework? No, it never made much sense to me. I think I inherited a lot of my mom's skepticism. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's in my DNA. But then you went all in, Jeff. Yeah. Not on Christianity, but you ended up converting to Judaism in large part, mm -hmm. as I understand it, because your kid, your son, was, was going through the process of being bar mitzvahed, your, your mm -hmm. wife is Jewish, mm -hmm. and you were kind of taking Hebrew classes alongside him to motivate him, but you could have just bailed at the end of that, but you decided to convert. Well, I joked at the time, even to the rabbi, that I just thought that I should be on the same team as my family if something goes down. Ah. And now it's not a now it's not a not a funny joke ah, at all. Ah, ah. But um, I was intrigued by my kids' experience at our temple and the tolerance of a lot of different viewpoints. You know, one of the things that our rabbi told my our older son, when he was being bar mitzvahed, was he asked our rabbi, what should he do if he doesn't believe in God? And his rabbi said, doesn't matter if you believe in God. What matters is that you search hmm. for the sacred. And that made sense to me. And in a way, you could take that as, as almost anything, you know, like, well, look for beauty, you know, look for whatever sacred means to you. And I thought that was really beautiful, and it felt like it was in line more than any experience I'd ever had in, in any organized religion. I felt more honest. If we stay in a religious vein, I'm stretching a little bit, but I want to talk about Otis Redding and sitting on the dock of the bay, because I think this is the most Buddhist of songs. <laughs> sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting in the evening calm. Watching the ships roll in, then I watch them roll away again. You're just there. You're just sitting on the dock yeah. of the bay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all the life is, is right there. Yeah. Yeah, as you could, like, it's a metaphor for your thoughts, you're just watching them come and go. That's like the goal of meditation. That's. Uh, what did uh, it mean to you? Why did you want to put this in? Well, I just think it's it's glorious. I just think it's a glorious welcoming song it's a warm embrace you know that song to me and it's non-judgmental it doesn't have an agenda like a lot of songs you know it just it is very still where does that pop up in your own songwriting do you think i don't know i don't know if i've ever gotten that lucky <laughs> you know or i'm not skilled but you know it's not for lack of trying just to make can we talk about I Will Always Love You? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Um, so this song is included not as a song that changed your life for the better. This song <laughs> is included because you despise this song. <laughs> and I want to engage you on this, Jeff. Okay. Um, All right. And of course, there's Whitney Houston's much acclaimed top 40 version, but there's also the original Dolly's version, Dolly Parton's version.
first of all, I wouldn't say despise. And okay. I also wouldn't go so far as to say it's not made my life better. Ah. I think finding out what you like and don't like is all a part of making your life better, you know, and like being yeah. able to recognize and reflect and introspect on what you don't like and why and sometimes there is no answer and I think being able to make peace with not knowing why you don't like something is good I know before you I redeem I, yourself though before you, you you get to play the the guy who can recognize the beauty in all things can you just tell yeah. me what you don't like about the song <laughs> it's the IEI part that's where the um the hair on the back of my neck starts to stand up or something, I guess, on all the versions. It's just, it's, it, it's in the, it's in the song. It's, it, no matter who sings it, that, that part drives me crazy. And oh, I know, gotcha. to me, the song has never really earned that big of a chorus. I don't uh, see the whole picture. I don't know who it's being sung to. I don't, you know, I, gotcha. I don't inter internalize it. I wish you at this point, I should admit that I was nervous to even have this conversation with you because like that Dolly Parton song was one of the only songs that I knew in this book when I was looking through uh, the table of contents. <laughs> and immediately I'm like, what did you think was going to happen, Rachel? Like you were listening to way cooler stuff when you were growing up, right? Like you had the Ramones and the Velvet Underground <laughs> and I was listening to Depeche Mode and Janet Jackson and like... I'm a pop music girl and I have lived with this insecurity that my musical tastes were never quite edgy or interesting enough. And what I loved about this little essay you wrote about I Will Always Love You and a couple other essays in the book is that you have come to the realization that not everything is for everyone and that is okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it can't be. You wouldn't want it to be. I don't think. I mean, that's the deeper realization is like, I think it would be really hard for us all to just like the same things and dislike the same things. It would make no sense. But like, uh, did it take you getting into whatever, your early 50s to come to this, like, epiphany? Would 23-year-old would Jeff Tweedy have been so generous? With no, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't know a 53-year-old Jeff Tweedy would have been is so generous to be honest i think that um i probably can be a lot more judgmental than i portray myself in the book i uh, i just don't think it's a very sympathetic public facing part of uh, <laughs> of like it but you know i don't especially as a musician i don't think that there's a lot of good that comes from musicians sniping at each other or yeah. are dismissing each other because there's um not a lot to be gained from trying to take somebody down a peg and that's why i picked Dolly Parton, who I adore. Right, because no one's going to do that to her. And John Bon Jovi is the other, like, big punching up. People I, uh -huh. like, they, I'm sure can take a little bit of uh, criticism from me. Or it's not even criticism. It's just uh, dismissive, <laughs> you know. Um, I've met John Bon Jovi, he's a very lovely person <laughs> and does a lot of really, you know, great work for his community and it doesn't help his music for me at all, you know, like, like at least, you at least in particular. both truths at the same yeah. time. But I also feel very, very confident that he can take a punch, like. <laughs> Will You Love Me Tomorrow? By Carol King, you wrote that there was a point when you were doing that song as an encore with Wilco, and 
it felt to you like the most honest that you could possibly be with an audience. Can you tell me why? Well, because I, I had never written a song that expressed that as well. Fear of love being fleeting, of loving somebody more than they love you. Early on in Wilco, there was a, a real sense of like, do I really get to do this? Do I really get to do this thing that I love so, so, so much? And and are are you going to let me do this? Are you going to love me enough so I get to keep doing this? I was saying that very explicitly to the audience. Are you are you going to come back next time we play in town? <laughs> are you going to be? You know, will you still love? Even after, because I think there was also one of the things that is embarrassing to me about being on stage still to this day is that it's so clearly that. It's so clearly you wanting some approval. Yeah. And there's a nakedness to that uh, just by being willing to walk out on a stage that nobody needs to psychoanalyze you. They just know, oh, you wouldn't be up there if you didn't right. want me to show you that I love you. Jeff Tweedy, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Jeff Tweedy is the lead singer of Wilco, the author of the new book, World Within a Song. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That is all things considered for this Sunday. Have a great end of your weekend. We'll talk to you again pretty soon.